you would again, take out your Bible and let's turn to John chapter 7. And we will be looking at verses 14 through 24. John 7, 14 through 24. John 7, starting in verse 14. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The grass withers, the flower falls but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for your many blessings. We ask, O oh God, that help us to understand this text. It's difficult. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless our time and the word. Give us ears to hear. Help us. Uh, to understand and to grow, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In our uh, text today is a discussion of how to evaluate truth. How to evaluate truth. Jesus was teaching and doing that which was given to him by the Father. In fact, his whole ministry has been about revealing God the Father to the people. And um, one way to know if the teaching is from God or from the individual is whether they're doing the will of God or not. The one who speaks for another who has sent them will do the will of the sender. Think about an ambassador. If an ambassador is speaking on behalf of the king, if he's truly speaking for the king, then he will do what the king wants done. He's not going to do his own thing. In this way, the truth becomes evident. If the ambassador is speaking for himself, or is he speaking for the king? This brings up a problem which exists today in our postmodern world people have begun to view truth as subjective right people uh, considered that they could just sort of create their own truth and live out their own truth 
They think that they, that they can just live that, that they can do this divorced from any other ultimate reality. Right? They, they determine truth for themselves. The problem is that once you take God out of the equation, when it comes to understanding the world, when it comes to evaluating truth claims, then you no longer have a basis for knowledge or morality. If you don't have God, then you can't know, really, you can't know anything at all. And you have no basis for knowledge. You have no basis for morality. You cannot judge truth from fiction without knowing the triune God of the Scriptures. Now, to be sure, things were not as chaotic religiously or philosophically in Jesus' day as it is in our day. And yet, there is nothing new under the sun. For there were many in Jesus' day who were simply unable to judge rightly the truth. Many were standing in judgment over Jesus' ministry and his teaching. They were not seeing that he was doing and only doing the will of the Father. Jesus, if you've been with us through this, uh, this study in John's Gospel, you remember that Jesus had claimed to be the bread of life. And this caused many of the people to grumble about him. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. Jesus has been doing miracles. Now, there, there are some aspects that people liked about his work. And yet Jesus was turning out to be not the Messiah they wanted. They had somebody else in mind. Because Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted. And you can see, you know, are you, are you doing what the one who sent you wants or the, what these people want? And you can see how these, there's a separation that has come about here. Now, the, the lack of desire uh, on the part of these people to see the will of the Father done was showing that they didn't actually know the Father. They didn't actually know God. They had their own agenda in mind. They weren't interested in what God wanted. And now, here in our present text, we find Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And he begins to teach the crowd at the temple. And again, we see that the people are amazed at his teaching. Um, they're amazed because here, here he is teaching. And he doesn't have the proper credentials. And Jesus begins to teach them how to properly assess truth. The fact is that they were not judging rightly, both in their supposed praise and in their critique of Jesus. And this is evidenced by the fact they did not follow the will of God. Jesus had come to do the will of the Father. His teaching was from God. But many of his hearers didn't actually know God. And this is, again, this reality is being revealed by their works. They were not doing the will of God. And so there's a contrast between Jesus and many of the rabbis and leaders from among the people. Now, you might recall from uh, the last, our last study uh, in John that Jesus' brothers had invited him to join them as they went up to the Feast of Booths. In fact, they were encouraging him to go publicly and to declare himself to the crowds. And his response was, then was to say, my time had not yet come. Now, it wasn't that he wasn't going to go to the feast. He would not go with them because he wasn't going to go publicly. He was, but he wasn't going to you know, try to gather crowds. He was going to go privately. 
And so he does eventually go. But he doesn't go at the beginning of the feast uh, when, when his brothers and all the others would have arrived. Jesus arrives somewhere in the middle. And this is actually where our narrative picks up in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, the Feast of Booths, uh, this Jewish feast, it would last for a week. Uh, There would have been crowds of pilgrims who would have flocked from all over the known world. And Jesus, as we've said, didn't arrive with the other pilgrims. He comes later. Now, if privacy was the goal, we might wonder, why then does he stand up in the temple and begin to teach? So we should understand this. Privacy wasn't the goal. Obedience to the Father was the goal. Jesus had come to Jerusalem in secret, but he didn't intend on remaining secret. He came to do the will of the Father. He didn't come to stir up the crowds. He didn't come to have honors bestowed upon him. He didn't come to have people flocking and you know, bringing him in in honor. That wasn't what he had come for. He had come to reveal the kingdom of God and ultimately to bring salvation to his people. And so Jesus begins to teach. Now, the Galilean crowds had been amazed at his teaching. Uh, You might remember, because he taught with authority. And here the crowds in Jerusalem are also amazed. They're marveling as well. And they ask, how is it this man is learning when he's never studied? Literally, it's, how does this man have learning when he doesn't know letters? He doesn't know letters. How could Jesus, how could Jesus who has never studied under any of, the, any of the famous rabbis, how could Jesus who had never attended any of the great centers of rabbinic learning, he had never, had never you know, got, you know, sat under all of these other teachers of the law, how could he have such a commanding understanding of Scripture? Who had taught this guy? How does he know so much? Under what authority does he say these things? You know, what other rabbi could we go to, to to find out about these things? Who else can speak on this authority? Jesus didn't have the proper accreditation in their view. He didn't have letters, we might say. And yet, he taught so masterfully. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus had amazed some with his vast learning. You might remember in Luke chapter 2, when he was 12 years old, he and his family had gone to the Passover feast, but Jesus stayed behind. And of course, you remember his parents, you know, kind of freaking out and going back to find him. And they do find him. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Luke chapter 2, verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's 12, and he's teaching the teachers. Now, whereas the teachers in Israel. Uh, had tended to draw their teaching from rabbinical uh, precedents. That is, they would cite other writers, they would cite other teachers, they would look at their rabbinical, rabbinical judgments. You know, that's how they would decide, like, well, so-and-so had written this, and so-and-so had said this, and, you know, sort of building on each other. Jesus drew from one source, his Father in heaven who had sent him. That's who Jesus is drawing from. He's not drawing from, you know, rabbinical precedents. And in this sense, then, Jesus, his teaching was not his own any more than any of the other teachers. 
But for Jesus, his source was of greater weight. Jesus wasn't relying on some long line of human tradition. He was drawing on the wisdom of the ancient of days, the creator of the universe, who he had an intimate relationship with. Now, one might wonder, and perhaps you're wondering, how could Jesus say that his teaching was not his own if in fact he is himself God? How does he say, this is not my teaching, this is from the one who sent me? Isn't Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity? Well, keep this in mind. Keep in mind that God the Son took on flesh. God the Son took on flesh. Philippians chapter 2 says that he emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember that Jesus was and continues to be God and man, two natures in one person forever. We must not think that the human nature was somehow swallowed up in the divine nature, such that he loses his humanity. The two natures of Christ, his humanity and his divinity, are not to be confused, changed, divided, or separated. Each nature is preserved and continuing to work concurrently in one person. Two natures, one person, forever. God and man. And so, in his earthly ministry, the Son of God did not simply know all things on account of his human nature. And yet, at the very same time, because of his intimate relationship of the Son of God to the Father, he taught only those things which have been revealed to him in his perfect obedience. Does this make sense? Well, it may not, because you're talking about things that are difficult. This is, this is, this is you know, uh, the doctrine of Christ and, and, and thinking about these two natures, which, let's be honest, it's hard to get our heads around this, right? Let's just be honest about that. It's hard to get our minds around this. But you have to understand that, that, that there is true humanity. That's the point. And that he speaks with this authority because he is God in his intimate relationship to the Father. And so in this sense, because of, of the revelation of the Father to the Son, which is special because of that in a Trinitarian relationship, right? The Father and the Son... In this sense, Jesus could say that his teaching was not his own, but that which is given to him. Consider, too, that in this sense, Jesus is actually saying much more than the rabbis. You know, Jesus could have said of them that they also only teach that which has been given to them. And this is true, right? They're teaching those things which have been given to them as been handed down through rabbinical tradition. Okay? That's what they're teaching. They're not teaching their own things in that sense. Their teaching is not their own. Each of them had a teaching which reflected the rabbis which had come before them. Remember that they always cited other rabbis for authority. Jesus is claiming something much more than that. And so in this, in this statement here, there is, at the very least, a veiled claim of his true divinity, along with his true humanity. 
the words and deeds of Jesus are one with the Father because he always does everything that the Father does and wills. And so Jesus can speak authoritatively as he says, truly, truly, I say unto you. Right? This is how he speaks. Truly, truly, I say to you. Because he is doing and saying all the things which God, the Father, has given to him. Hopefully you're able to track along with this. And so in this way, uh, this is quite different than even the prophets who spoke, saying, Thus saith the Lord. You know, the, the prophets spoke the word of God, and this is true, they, they did speak the very words of God, but they did not always do all that the Father did, right? They only spoke, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord had said, You know, here's what you need to say. But they were still human beings. This is different than God the Son, who always does and says everything that the Father says. And so here, in this way, Jesus is greater than someone, say, like Moses. Now, this isn't to say that Moses was unimportant or that his words were flawed. That would be to misunderstand what we're saying here. But rather, what we're doing is highlighting the greatness of the Son of God. The greatness of Jesus. Jesus is unique as he's revealing God to people. And so we might ask this, you know, the, the, the rabbis and the leaders are questioning the credentials of Jesus. How could this man speak this way when he doesn't have any learning? Does Jesus have the right credentials? The rabbis were questioning this, but without a doubt he does. He had the best credentials. Because he had been called by the Father as the Son to reveal all truth. No one else could have credentials like this. Nobody could have credentials like Jesus. And we can see what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to speak the words of God, always doing that which the Father has given. But the truthfulness of the claim is another matter. Now, of course, you and I know that the claim of Jesus is true, but how do we know this? How do we know this is true, what Jesus is claiming? Well, here, Jesus insists that the question of truth cannot be determined, as one commentator put it, through the rigorous debating procedure of the rabbinical schools. You know, this is what they would do. They would, they would get together and they'd debate all these questions out. This is not how truth, though, is ultimately revealed. There is a moral dimension to this. Jesus' claim of speaking the truth from God, like any claim of speaking the truth, must be reflected in what the person does as well as what is said. So look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, verse 17 admittedly, is difficult. It's difficult. Translations are all over the place on it. Um, and, you know, I know that there's a variety of translations reflected in here, and some of them look a little different, even from what I just read from the ESV. But what is clear is that Jesus is giving a qualification to his audience. And taken all together, we can still get at his most basic meaning. First, we should understand that there is a heart and mind disposition as it relates to the will of God. There's a heart and mind disposition in, in terms of the will of God and the teachings of an individual. In the case, Jesus, of course, is speaking himself. What he's doing is telling them, you, know, you want to evaluate my teaching, here's how you do it. 
If one does not have the desire to obey God as expressed in God's word, then we can safely say that that person is not qualified to evaluate the truthfulness of a claim. You have to be doing the will of God. You have to be desiring to be following God. You can't say, well, I reject God, but I'm going to stand in judgment over God and his teaching. The standard, uh, the standard of qualification then would eliminate most of the scribes and priests and leaders of Israel because they have shown themselves to have a, a lack of desire to obey God. And so they find themselves in a difficult position when it comes to evaluating the truth claims or of knowing truth. Because they weren't looking to, their desire wasn't to follow God or to do God's will. Now we can apply this, of course, in our own world too, can't we? How, how, how can somebody evaluate a truth claim uh, if they don't know the one who knows all truth, who, who reveals all truth? If God is not the measure of truth, then what possibly can be? You'll see the will of God is not just something that is thought about and assessed in the abstract, as if we could objectively examine and pick apart what we like and don't like. What God desires for his people is not simply abstract ideas to be debated and hemmed and hawed over. You know, these aren't just philosophical questions that we're just sort of you know, gazing at and, and arguing over. No, God's word and will is something that fundamentally must be done. And James talks about this, doesn't he? Faith without works is what? Dead. It's not a living and active faith. The person with a living and active faith has a commitment to doing the will of God. Not simply knowing about the will of God or, or debating about the will of God as if it was some sort of an abstract philosophical question. The faith commitment considered here, by the way, is one which renders impossible any attitude which would set people up as judges of God's ways. There is not some vantage point outside of, ex- of the external world by which men could judge the truth of the claims of Christ, his signs, or anything else touching on God and his will. Which is to say that there is no neutral ground. There's no, there's no place where we you know, can just stand in judgment and evaluate and assess things as if we were some sort of third party evaluating truth claims. It's not the way this works. You and I and every human being are finite, fallen creatures who are in desperate need of a Savior and who are going to be judged by Him. There is no sure ground apart from Christ. We must be in Christ by faith, believing and doing the will of God as revealed in His Word. Now this is a point that the unbeliever does not always appreciate. For they seem to think, as many of the rabbis in our text seem to think in Jesus' day, that autonomous human reasoning can judge any truth claim based on the examination of evidence. But as it turns out, this is actually a fool's errand. Because you can't actually know anything if you don't know the one who knows all things and who has revealed all things. In other words... Your knowing God and doing his, is, is vindicated by your doing His will. Man is incapable of examining a truth claim without revelation of God. Namely, we need the Word of God. 
as revealed magnificently in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless we are living in obedience to the will of God, which is living by faith in Jesus, then we can't know God, we can't know truth, and we have no way to evaluate it. There's no, there's no way to just sort of step outside of the system, as it were, and you know, you know, be able to stand as judge. That, doesn't, that is the position we get to take, because we're not God. And so the person who does not, or the person who does the will of God, will discover that Jesus' teaching perfectly articulates that. Because Jesus does not speak on his own human authority. Right? Remember, he's both God and man. He's not speaking, his, his, the authority is not derived from his human nature, as it were. Right? He's not speaking just as a human. But he is speaking as the word of God incarnate. This truth becomes more evident in the maxim which follows. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Here's what we should understand. Jesus is totally committed to seeking the glory of the Father. His commitment is to glorifying the one who sent him. Jesus, therefore, is the man of truth, not falsehood. He's not seeking his own glory, as it were. He's seeking the glory of God the Father. Now, this is di- very different. Again, this is, you see the contrast here. This is very different from the people who were opposing him. Many of the rabbis were seeking glory from themselves and from one another. They used uh, the one who sent them... That is, uh, that is their own teachers. They use them to gain followers, to gain glory to themselves. Their attitude is reflected in the problem, the, the problem with Jesus' brother's suggestion. Right? We saw this last week. You know, his brother's like, you know, hey, you should go, you should go to Jerusalem and go to this feast because there'll be lots of people there. Right? You can gain a following. They wanted him to grow in glory because you know what? This is what all of the teachers of Israel did. All of them were seeking their own glory and not the glory of God. All of them did this, perhaps with the exception of John the Baptist. But all the other teachers seemed interested in in their own following. And this is the very thing that Jesus was not going to do. And this is, by the way, precisely why many of the priests, scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, were not qualified to judge the truthfulness of the words and deeds of Jesus. Because they weren't doing the will of God, but they were seeking their own glory. They were not interested in what God wanted, only what they wanted. And to further drive home this point, Jesus asks this question, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Now, of course, they know the answer to that question. Of course Moses gave them the law. Everyone knows that Moses gave the law. In fact, this was a topic of discussion before. Moses had given the law, and yet, Jesus says, none of you keep the law. Moses gave you the law, didn't he? But you're not keeping the law. And here, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of his opponents. These rabbinic teachers and leaders of Israel had received the Torah. They had received the law. They had received the law of Moses, uh, the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law. Now consider for a moment the moral law. Where do we find uh, the summary of the moral law? Well, the Ten Commandments. 
One of which is, you shall not murder. And yet, some among them were seeking to kill him. You see the point Jesus is driving at here. right? You, know, you have the law of Moses, and yet you're not keeping a simple law, like don't kill people, like don't murder people. And so here's the substance of Jesus' argument. The reason that people do not understand his teaching is from God is because they have chosen not to do God's will. And how do we know what God's will is? Well, God wrote his will, as it turns out, his law. He wrote it to us. He gave it to us. The people had, you know, the rabbinic leaders had received the law. They'd received the Torah. Right? They had, and they had chosen to ignore. They had chosen to be disobedient to the law of God. Specifically, these leaders and teachers of Israel were chosen to ignore the command of, of Moses and the Ten Commandments not to murder. And they hated Jesus. They were seeking to kill him. And here we find the evidence which supports his contention and shows the authorities' hypocrisy. How could they claim to know God, to know and do His will, and yet seek to murder? That doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive together, does it? It doesn't go together. How could they claim to follow Moses? How could they claim to delight in the law of God, to meditate on it day and night? How could they claim to know the truth, to know the will of God, and they can't keep one simple thing, namely not attempting to murder. I mean, it's a small thing, isn't it? Now the crowd gathered there, as Jesus says, you know, you're seeking to kill me. Um, and this would have been more than just the leaders. It would have been uh, just many of the other people that are gathered there. Instantly repudiate Jesus' say, claim. They say in verse 20, You have a demon! You have a demon! Who's seeking to kill you? Uh, that's another way of saying... You're insane. Right? You're possessed by a demon. You're, you're crazy. Who, who's, who, who do you think is trying to kill you? Now the question, they question the statement that someone's trying to kill them. The issue of demon possession, of course, will come up later uh, as an explanation for things they don't like about Jesus. Every time he says or does things they don't like, they well, you know, you just have a demon. So, I mean, why, do we, why should we even listen to this guy? You know, he's, he's just got a demon. He's just insane. Now, it is possible that there were many in the crowd who were unaware of the plot against Jesus. After all, you know, as we've already said before, many of the people had come from various parts of the known world, from other regions. This may have been their first experience with Jesus in person. Of course, it may be, too, that there were many who were, in fact, seeking to kill him, who then were trying to distract, right? I mean, if, the, if, you're, if you have a plot to kill somebody, the very first thing you're going to say is, oh, no, we're not trying to do that, right? And so many of them may have been trying to distract from that and, and accusing Jesus of having a demon. Oh, he's just insane. Who would try to kill him? Oh, yeah, we're going to kill him, right? Whatever case may be, Jesus doesn't respond to the false accusations against him. Instead, Jesus' response is to raise an issue which had occurred the last time he was in Jerusalem and the attitude of the people. He raises this issue. Verse 21, he says, I did one work and you all marveled at it. I did one work and you all marveled at it. So here, what Jesus is referring to is the healing on the Sabbath day. We have an example of this in chapter 8. In the healing of the, of the lame man by the pool of Bethsaida, who had been paralyzed for 38 years. 
That work had caused astonishment. But not the healing itself. That wasn't what astonished them. They were like, wow, he healed somebody. That wasn't what astonished them. What they were astonished was that a man would carry his, would dare carry his mat after having been healed on the Sabbath day, openly flaunting the accepted norms of the Sabbath. That's what they were marveling at. Right? They're marveling at the wrong thing. What should have been normal is seeking to heal and restore. That should be normal. And to further make the point, Jesus draws again on the law of Moses. Look at verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Well, it's not like they don't do other things on the Sabbath day. Though Moses had, uh, through Moses, circumcision was formalized in the law, but circumcision was actually first given to Abraham as the covenant sign. Abraham and his household were circumcised, but then the right later becomes a part of the Mosaic law at Sinai. Now, John provides this bit of historic detail in order to establish that the right of circumcision came about prior to the giving of the Mosaic law. And therefore, takes precedence over it. It is here that the threads of the argument begin to come together. Circumcision is always performed on the Sabbath day in order to fulfill the law. If a son is born on a Sabbath day, the following Sabbath day would be the eighth day, and that child would necessarily be circumcised so that the law of God might be fulfilled. Now, no one's bothered by this. No one's bothered that the work of circumcision is performed on the Sabbath day. And why is this? Well, it's because there is no violation of the Sabbath in order to perform the duty of the law. Okay, we understand that point. Verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body, whole body, well? Do you guys see what Jesus is driving at here? Do you understand the threads of the argument that he's making? If the Jews are not formally breaking the Sabbath when they perform circumcision on the Sabbath day, so that the law of Moses is not broken, then why? Then the question is, why are they angry when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day? And Jesus is appealing to a hierarchy of precedence, which, by the way, is somewhat ironic, as you know, the, the rabbis were all about precedence, right? You know, they were, but they were, their precedence was all human tradition. Jesus is like, look at the word of God and find the precedence there. Okay? So he's, he's appealing to a hierarchy of precedence. If circumcision is important and it carries a greater precedence than the Sabbath day, how much more is doing mercy? What did we read in, uh, for, uh, earlier from Micah chapter 6? He has told you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? That you do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Are not acts of kindness, are not acts of mercy important? Is not healing a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years a great kindness and mercy? Should not making a man whole take precedence over the scheme of the law? And Jesus taught elsewhere in the Sabbath that the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. It's not to be a, a burden. That's not the point. 
And the rabbis and the scribes and the leaders of Israel, they wanted to squabble over the fine points of the law, all the while missing the main picture of it. They missed the point. Mercy, kindness, healing, compassion, love. These fulfill the law. If one happily performs circumcision on the Sabbath day, then why not an act of compassion? Why not loving your neighbor and healing them? Now, the Jews could argue, I suppose, that a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, they you know, could wait one more day. I mean, you know, you've already been paralyzed for 38 years. What's one more day? You could argue that. <coughs> However, circumcision cannot wait another day, according to the law. It must be performed on the eighth day. If that's on the Sabbath, then so be it. It must be performed. And circumcision is a covenant sign which points forward to God's redeeming and healing purposes. That's sort of the irony of this, isn't it? This is, circumcision points to healing. Therefore, why should the healing of a man have to wait? Why should compassion wait a day? In fact, it is a demonstration of God's purposes in making broken, sinful men to be whole again. Those who think the broken man could wait for one more day lacks the compassion of God and are actually failing to uphold the law of love. Why would we, why would we make somebody wait a day? Well, I'd love to help you, but it's Sabbath. Sorry, you have to wait till tomorrow. You know. What? Where's the compassion? Where's the love? Where's the mercy? This brings us full circle in the argument that Jesus is making. The opponents of Jesus have been judging by outward appearances. They were looking only at the surface level. They were not thinking very deeply or very clearly. They did not know how to judge rightly. They did not know how to determine truth. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The crowds are amazed that Jesus can teach without formal learning from one of their rabbinical schools. They're astonished that a man would dare to heal a man on the Sabbath day. And yet many of them also think it's right to kill a man whose teaching they disagree with or don't understand. Well, you see the problem these folks have, don't you? They're making judgments based on superficial criteria, not on the law of God. In fact, they're willing to break the law of God to somehow fulfill the law of God in their skewed understanding of things. This is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. You can't, you can't break the law to fulfill the law. That's not the way, God is not a God of disorder. God is a God of order. And ultimately what they show themselves is that they don't actually know God. And the proof that they do not know God is found in the fact that they ignore God's law and refuse to do God's law. They refuse to, to fulfill the most basic summation of the law. The most basic, right? We see the summary of the moral, uh, the moral law and the Ten Commandments. We could break it down even more. The summation of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
I mean, it's it's basic. This is this is elementary, isn't it? This is this is not uh, you know this is theology 101. This isn't uh, you know some advanced doctrinal level the- theology class. This is basic stuff, and yet the rabbis had missed it. But beloved congregation, don't you miss it too? Don't you miss it too? This is, a, this is a challenging section of scripture. It's challenging on, on a number of levels. Um, for, for one of the struggles I've had is just simply, where do I even break this, this section apart? Because really the next two chapters go together. And so, <laughs> you know, we could be here for the next week if I tried to, you know, preach it all together. Um, but keeping it all together anyway, it's been challenging in that way. But also Jesus is critiquing the Jewish leaders pretty intentionally, knowing their hearts. And there's a critique here for us as well. This is why it's also challenging. Dearly beloved Christian, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you can ignore the law of God or violate the law of God and doing the thing, and also at the same time do the things which please God. You can't, you can't say, well, you know, I'm going to go do whatever I want, live however I want, and I'm also in the will of God. You, can't, you just don't get to do that. Don't fall into that trap. Don't think that knowing God is only of the mind and not of the heart. Lots of people know about God. In fact, I would argue everyone knows God, knows about God, right? But doesn't know God in the heart. They are instead suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The Christian ought to strive to not only know the will of God in his word, but to do the will of God by faith. We don't get to violate the law of God and at the end think that we know God and are serving Him. Are we loving our neighbors ourselves? Do we love the Lord our God with our heart, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Now, don't misunderstand this either. We are absolutely we absolutely affirm and believe in justification by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from the works of the flesh. This is, that's not what we're actually talking about here at all. We're not talking about justification. We're rather talking about the proofs that that justification has indeed occurred. Really, in a sense, we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about those who have been saved by grace through faith, who then, as a result of that, delight themselves in the word and law of God. That's what we're talking about. The believer does this because their hearts have been transformed. They've been renewed and conformed more and more into the image of God. And the desire then is to be obedient to the will of God, which reflects something of your new status in Christ. It's not the cause of it. It reflects your status. This indication is what Jesus is speaking of concerning his opponents, right? Their actions were showing that they don't actually know God. They claim to know God, and yet they were more than happy to violate God's law in the most most basic way. Yeah, we're just going to murder somebody, right? (laughs) And and we're going to fulfill God's will by doing that. That's, That's ludicrous. That can't be. Beloved, look at your heart. Look at your desires. What do you desire? Do you desire to follow wholeheartedly after God, to seek His will? Don't think you can violate God's word and then also be in relation with Him. If you sin, beloved, repent, turn from your sin, be renewed in Christ, trust in Him, find your rest in Him, follow wholeheartedly after your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. It's, been diff- it's a difficult passage, and yet we, we pray that truth has been shown and that we can understand and apply this to ourselves, to our hearts, 
Help us to be a people who who seek to meditate day and night on your word, but also to then do that which you have revealed to us. Help us to be obedient to you in Christ. And help us to delight ourselves in you because we are new creatures in you. That we are children of God, called out of darkness into your light. Help us to live by the Spirit in accordance to your will. Thank you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.